The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Scripture says regarding itself, in thy light we see light. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Gee, that sounds better now that the sound came up. And in thy light we see light. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate. I think concentration is a key word for this evening. As we continue to go down the path that we started a few weeks ago about learning how to think a little more biblically, which always challenges us. And tonight we're going to wrap it up, and then we'll get back into the next section of Hebrews, which is also a challenging section. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the Opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that your word is absolute truth, and it is the truth that is within which we can understand all of created reality. That there's a categorical distinction between the truth that is resident in your omniscient mind and the truth that we see and learn experientially and rationally. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, help us to think clearly, learn how to think more precisely, that we may be able to interact with what we hear and see what goes on around us in a way that is more reflective of living and thinking about living in a world that is created by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in a section of Hebrews, just going to run through this very briefly to get us all back, get all of our thinking back where we ended last time. Because as I pointed out when we began last time, I really needed three solid uninterrupted hours to communicate what I wanted to communicate, but we get this, get things broken up, and everybody goes about their uh, business for another week, and then you come back, and we have to sort of get everybody back to thinking these deep, heavy thoughts. And the writer of Hebrews is just castigating his audience here because they have regressed spiritually and as part of spiritual regression there is the loss of the ability to think biblically there's the loss of the ability to think precisely and accurately about anything in your life and this has to do with relationships it has to do with work it has to do with with thought it has to do with the deeper elements of thought and this get we get clouded because what happens is our thinking becomes affected by sin. And and Peter talks about the fact that it is the fleshly lusts that war against the soul. And so it's real easy for us to think at one level about the fact that when you get involved in extended carnality, that obviously the living a sinful life has an impact on our ability to think biblically. 
and it retards any spiritual growth, we begin to regress back into childhood. That's what happens here. But it not only relates to the content of our thinking, as it were, in terms of thinking wrong kinds of thought, where we're, our thinking is dominated by mental attitude sins of uh, envy or anger or bitterness or resentment, or whether our thinking is affected by uh, various lust patterns in terms of materialism lust or in terms of sexual lust or, or uh, chemical lust or any of the other lust patterns, what we recognize is that there, all of this occurs within a larger framework. And that larger framework is how we think. And that I've used the illustration of building a house that when the Holy Spirit comes in and is renovating Romans 12.2 where we have the principle of not being conformed to the world but uh, overhauling or transforming our thinking that the Holy Spirit is not only changing what we think about in terms of the content but he's also going to change how we think that we no longer think as the world thinks within a limited frame of reference of rationalism or empiricism so all of this kind of comes together because we've had questions in the last month or so about is there a place to think about or to utilize vocabulary related to mysticism in the Christian life and, and how does thinking really affect or the forms of thinking uh, affect us because they, they do. It's, and I've used the illustration of being transformed from the cultural norms and uh, patterns and habits that we have here in the United States and suddenly you're transformed, you end up in some rural village of 300 in the Shantung province of China and you're never going to see another American for the rest of your life. You're never going to talk English for the rest of your life, that is to anybody who could understand you. And so you have to overhaul everything in your thinking in order to live in this new culture. And that is not nearly as radical as the change that takes place when you're moved from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive to being a child of the devil to being a child of God and the royal family of God. And yet it is this kind of thing that's so rarely ever taught or talked about in most churches because it is rare to find people who want to have uh, a view of the Christian life or be challenged to move beyond sort of a first grade level understanding or education in what the spiritual life is all about. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is challenging his readers because they have fallen back. He says for everyone, in Hebrews 5.13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. That means if you're just taking in kindergarten level, first grade level doctrine, then you will not have the skills necessary to advance to spiritual maturity. He uses the word aperos to indicate the word for the word skilled, which means someone who's ignorant of true doctrine, not practicing it, not consistently putting it into practice. And then he goes on to say, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who are mature, that is, those who by reason of use, that is, practice, this is the, uh, technically it's a Greek word, hexis, meaning skill, proficiency, someone who repeatedly and successfully practices the spiritual skills. They're, and part of the first basic spiritual skills, we come to doctrinal orientation. And doctrinal orientation means that we are orienting our thinking to the Word of God and no longer orienting our thinking to the human viewpoint, modus operandi of the 
culture around us. So it takes practice, it takes thinking, it takes time to think about how you, how we think. So he says here, solid food, that is solid doctrine, belongs to those who are mature, those who by consistent practice, those who by consistent use have their senses exercised to do what? To discern. And I'm going to skip over that slide to the word discern. Diacrisis, meaning the ability to distinguish or evaluate. What we're talking about here is spiritual critical thinking skills. Spiritual critical thinking skills. Now, how do you learn to think critically about anything in life? You think about whatever the field is that you're in. If you've, if you've gone through college and you've studied history, if you've studied English, you've studied education, you know that in whatever field you're in, there are different viewpoints. And only by reading and studying do you learn to identify the different viewpoints that are there and understand that, uh, that this viewpoint is not, has weaknesses over against this other viewpoint. And something that's common to all of us is in the arena of, of politics and the arena of political theory and what you think about how the country should be won. And you know that there are two basic views of looking at uh, government and politics. You have the conservative view and the liberal view, and those grow out of an entire world view of how a person looks at everything in life, starting from God and working all the way down to man. Now, most people don't press it that far. They think because they're Americans, they think more pragmatically. What works? And see, that is a pragmatics is your, as an American, is one of the human viewpoint. Uh, norms and standards that you have in your soul. And this is typical of most Americans. And don't give me all this theory stuff. Just tell me what to do. Ah, but see, what you do always flows out of a theory, whether you know it or not. And if you're not aware of what that, quote, theory is that underlies it, then all you're doing is practicing a theory called pragmatics. Whatever works is okay. And that flows out of and is consistent with a moral uh, moral relativism uh, view of a- absolute. So we have to think about our fundamental concepts of thought, and we have to learn to do this, and it only comes by practice, by illustration, by example. And this is one of the things that I, I try to do. A basic principle in any education theory is that we learn things, sometimes we learn by contrast, by contrasting this is one thing, it's not this, it's not that. You can understand uh, various shades of the color red by comparing them and contrasting them to green or to blue or something else. You learn to hone in on what one thing is and uh, in contrast other things that are very close to it. So we uh, compare and contrast in order to get a more focused view of what the scripture is teaching. Now, as we went through this last time, I've been teaching about the fact that as we get into, go back to verse 14, as we get in the spiritual life, we have this problem with how we think. Nobody wants to talk about it. And on the one hand, there's pressure from the antinomian trend of the sin nature to give up any kind of absolutes or rigorous logic and thinking, and that's called mysticism. We just have this intuitive insight into what's right, what's wrong, what God wants us to do, and we label it the Holy Spirit. That's what happens in Christianity. That's really mysticism because it is the whole, it is this intuitive thing operates 
in a way that is completely independent from Scripture. So we talked about that. Then we came back and we talked about on the other side, we have pressure from, as the sin nature trends towards legalism, it has a related view of knowledge that ends up in either autonomous rationalism or empiricism. All of this affects how we, how we think about witnessing to people in the arena of apologetics. How we witness to people. So it's, whereas a lot of this is hard to think through, it has a very practical application in three areas. First of all, it helps us think more precisely about how we're going to communicate the truth of Christianity to an unbeliever. Now, there's a lot of unbelievers that you're going to witness to that may not raise objections. They may have never thought very uh, deeply or profoundly about some things, or maybe there's been some pre-evangelism that's taken place where some of these questions have already been answered for them, and you step in and you give them the gospel, and they're ready to accept the gospel right then and there. But other times you may be talking to somebody, and all they've heard is a lot of the objections to Christianity and you get involved in trying to help them understand that Christianity is not putting your brain in neutral and just uh, irrationally accepting a view of God or uh, what the scripture says but that from within the framework of scripture it is rational and it is uh, consistent and it is not without validation Notice I didn't say proof. And that's where we're getting into the real issue here. Most people make a strategic error error because they try to go to something to prove the truth of God. But in uh, in, in the very attempt to prove that God is true, that implies going to a higher standard than God, something over and above God that you're going to use to prove God. Something And what is higher authority than God? Nothing. So you can't act as if there's some autonomous, universal principle that hangs out there that um, that you can appeal to that is equally the same for both believer and unbeliever. Now that's just kind of a quick summary. And what I want to do is go back to about nine points that I finished with last time because they lay the foundation for our our thinking in this area, and then we'll get into a little more practical application. Because the other thing we want to get, come away from this with is not only an understanding of how to be a little more effective in evangelism and our strategy of answering the questions that an unbeliever may ask, but we don't want to commit the, prob- the error that Proverbs warns about is answering a fool according, according to his folly. Just because they ask a question doesn't mean it's a question that should be answered. So we have to learn how to, how to think a little more consistently here. Part of this means that the second thing that we're going to get out of this is we're going to develop discernment. It all builds our ability to think critically about what we're doing and about how we, we think. And for those of you who are parents who have children, the third thing is that it's going to help you, hopefully, be able then to impart this to your children, kids in prep school, uh, so that they can learn to think critically because we live in a world today where 
kids and all of us are just bombarded all the time with all kinds of human viewpoint garbage and a lot of it sounds good and we absorb it and it becomes part of our thinking and we don't even know it and I sit around and I talk to Christians time day in and day out and they say they make various statements thinking that it's okay or it's divine viewpoint and it's just human viewpoint garbage but they don't realize it because they've never been taught to really think about things in terms of systems so that's a deeper way to do it, to talk about it let's go to a scripture that we're very familiar with just to review when we talk to an unbeliever our point of contact isn't reason because the problem with the unbeliever isn't rational it isn't that he thinks that the problem is logic the problem is sin, and that's ultimately what has to be exposed in any kind of gospel presentation situation. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, the unbeliever knows God exists. He, doesn't have, he may say it's a problem of logic, but that's just a smokescreen. He may say it's a problem of evidence, but that's just a smokescreen. The problem is that in the arrogance of his fallen nature, he wants to suppress the truth that God exists. That's verse 20. For since the, or it goes on to verse, uh, uh, verse 21, which is not on the screen. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The unbeliever has enough data available to him so that he is can be held accountable. Actually, the verse that I was referring to is verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. So you know two things when you're, when you're starting to communicate to an unbeliever. Number one, they already know that God exists. Number two, they, have a, they are committed to a strategy of suppressing that truth. And number three, God the Holy Spirit is breaking through that with the gospel that you're presenting to them. So it's not like you have to know every answer, be able to deal with every issue or anything like that. It's that you, but you have to understand what the, what the dynamics are, what's going on in the, in, as it were, if you want to use the analogy of a football game, you have to understand what the rules of the football game are. So you're playing, playing within the right, right uh, area of endeavor. Okay, what we're talking about is apologetics. Number one, apologetics is the explanation and vindication of the Christian worldview over against the various forms of the non-Christian worldview. Why the, this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, biblically, we are commanded to give an answer for the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15, giving an answer for the hope that is in us is the Greek word apologia, which means to make a rational defense, like a lawyer in a courtroom defending his client, bringing, marshalling the evidence to defend, the, uh, the, de- defend his client. The second thing that apologetics is good for is because it strengthens our faith and our understanding of the truth. The more you get into understanding the, di- the contrast between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint thinking, the more it brings into sharp focus some of the flaws in our own thinking that we haven't been aware of up to this point. 
So that's one reason. Second point. How you conduct your defense is as important as the content of your defense. In other words, a right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. So I use, I've used the illustration of you, you have the dream defense team. You've got Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey and Robert Shapiro and um, uh, Johnny Cochran and our Percy Foreman, and they're your defense team. But they're all dealing with the same evidence. But they argue amongst themselves as to what the right way is to present the evidence. Because even though you have all the facts on your side, we all know from watching various court cases in recent years that you can make strategic errors in the way you present the data and you get the wrong verdict. And sometimes you make strategic errors and you basically... uh, cut the legs out from under yourself because in the process of presenting the evidence you make a strategic error you compromise yourself we've seen that in a number of cases so what we're talking about here is a strategy for utilizing the evidence now all of this is simply to show that we 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 need to be aware of how we think and not just what we think third a key issue in the defense strategy is not to compromise the reality of God and, and his revelation Since God is the central reality of the Christian faith and the highest authority in the universe, then we cannot appeal to some assumed higher authority for proof. What can be higher than God? What can be higher than God's spoken word? To what are you going to refer that has higher integrity than God in order to prove God? There's nothing out there. And see, this is often one of the flaws in apologetics. Since Fourth point, since in the interchange with the unbeliever, the issue is how do you know what is right and true in a field of competing religious claims and philosophical positions, one must be very careful. You've got a hundred different competing philosophies and religions out there, and the unbeliever is going to say, well, how do you know you're right? Well, can you answer that question? See, that's what First Peter 3.15 is all about, is being able to answer that question. And can you answer it without compromising the integrity of God in the process? Well, that's what we're talking about. Fifth point, God is all-powerful. He spoke this created reality into existence and has defined all the elements of that reality. A tree is what it is because God has made it and defined it, not because it's the product of chance in a universe ruled by chaos. Point I'm making in that illustration is you as a believer, you believe in a spe- in special creation that God created everything in six days in Genesis chapter one, six little twenty-four hour days. Therefore, an oak tree is an oak tree because God made it that way, not because just by product of long periods of time and chance that it just happened to come up that way. So, at some level, when you and a dendrologist an evolutionary-based dendrologist look at that oak tree, you're not looking at the same oak tree. Because for you, the oak tree is something that tells you all about the marvels of God's intricate plan and thought, and all of that is part of what makes that oak tree what it is. So when it comes to morality, morals are what they are. Right and wrong is what it is, actually. Right and wrong is what it is because of God's character and revelation, not because of consensus. Six point. He who is omnipotent and is the absolute creator possesses all authority and a self-attesting authority. 
I want you to think a minute about being at the foot of Mount Sinai in the spring of 1446 B.C. You're there with approximately two million other Jews. And all of a sudden, you hear this voice. You will have no other gods before me. Now, are you going to say, is is that the voice of God? Now, how do we know that's the voice of God? Now, now, is somebody going to go up there on the mountain and just, just check this out for us? Let's get a little validation here so we can. What are you going to go to? I mean, that's the point here is the voice of God resonates within the fallen creature's soul. Whether he likes it or not, at some level in his soul, he knows God is speaking. He's suppressing it. He's wrapping it up in all kinds of human viewpoint rationalizations. But when we're talking to that unbeliever, we've got this edge. You don't have to prove God. He already knows God exists. Seventh, therefore, the character of God's revelation affirms this starting point of the recognition of God as the self-attesting authority. To suggest another way of testing or validating that authority uh, should read, shuts up man into a non-biblical position of being the truth determiner. And that's what happens in Genesis 3. Satan comes along to the woman and says, Did God really say? In other words, is it true that if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die? Now, the woman fell for it. See, she started to answer a fool according to his folly. And as soon as she did, she she bit the bait in the trap. As soon as she did that, she was put herself in a position to verify, validate whether or not God was true. She put herself in a position of judging the veracity of God. And at that instant, everything dominoed, ending up with her sin. Point number eight. We, therefore, as Christians, begin with the assumption that God's Word is the final authority and therefore stands in judgment over all other forms of philosophical and religious knowledge. It's not an equal playing field. That's what everybody wants you to think, that all these are just equally competing views, but they're not. And then point number nine, ultimately the problem of man is not rational. See, it's not a flaw in logic. It's not that you have to point out uh, that you know, if you just understood the logic here, then you'd believe in God. Now, he does have a logical problem, but that's not the core issue. Neither is it an empirical problem that if he just had enough facts, he would believe. If he just understood, understood what went on in history, then he would believe. Because it's deeper than that. Neither is it because his inner light is dimmed. You know, it's not that he's in touch with his inner self or his inner God. It's that he has a constitutional spiritual flaw. He has fallen and he is suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. He is reinterpreting the data to fit his own arrogant, autonomous agenda. Point number 10, the Holy Spirit cuts through the spiritual darkness to shed light on the gospel. This is in John 16, 7 and 8. John 16, 7 and 8. Now, that's the framework for looking at how we present the gospel. 
Quick review. We've got our knowledge chart up here. There are three systems of human viewpoint thinking. Rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. What they all have in common is a starting point of faith in human ability. Now, remember I pointed out, this isn't that there are three systems of perception, empiricism, rationalism, and faith. Because that juxtaposes faith to reason and makes faith non, it may make faith non-rational. At the core of all these is a faith in human ability to properly interpret and understand the data, whatever it is, whether it's starting with reason, starting with experience, or starting with his own intuition. And the key word under methodology is they all operate on something that is independent. Independent of what? Independent of what God said. The divine viewpoint position is that we start with revelation. Now, we can't start with revelation here and then cross over the gap between us and the unbeliever and uh, operate on his assumptions to try to bring him back over here because his assumptions are all flawed assumptions of a rebellious creature. So we have to hold our ground. That's where this chart came in. On the left you have the believer. On the right you have the unbeliever. Often believers think that, okay, and these are different schools of apologetics, that the point of common ground between the believer and the unbeliever is rationalism. It's usually expressed as logic or the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction means something can't be both A and non-A at the same time in the same way. Let me say that again. It means that something can't be both A and non-A at the same time in the same way. In other words, something can't be blue and not blue at the same time. Okay, Something can't be tall and not tall at the same time. In other words, there is a logical, it's also called, uh, if you're saying something that contradicts itself logically, then one statement or the other is false. It assumes that you can prove tr truth on the basis of reason. Okay, And so what this assumes is that reason for the unbeliever is the same as it is for the believer. I'm going to give you an example of that because I want to use as an example tonight is C.S. Lewis because two weeks ago we showed The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe here at Family Night in order to give people an opportunity to watch uh, a film based on uh, the book that he wrote which, is, which he intended to be used as pre-evangelism to utilize a lot of symbols and images that, uh, that you find in Christianity in order to communicate some broad Christian principles. And so you have the hero in the story is Aslan the lion. And that particularly comes from the fact that Jesus Christ is uh, said to be the lion of Judah. And the word Aslan comes from the Persian meaning lion. And so the lion is the hero who comes and he's the one who's going to uh, conquer the winter that the uh, evil witch has brought. And the evil witch, of course, is analogous to, to Satan. And that under Satan's rule, human history is dead, and it's white, and everything's cold, and there's no, no life. And it's only after Aslan dies and comes back to life that you have uh, 
the full uh, spring coming in, and only when he returns does he bring life. And you have this imagery of him going and breathing on these uh, different people and animals that have been turned into stone objects, which is a picture of how of the of the Holy Spirit breath that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings life. There's all these images in there, and they have to go to battle and they win the battle. But even after they win the the first battle, there's an ongoing battle, and that's a picture of the Christian life. That once you once you're saved, there's still an ongoing battle afterwards. And there's all these images that he's using, which are quite good. One that I found quite intriguing is one that is based on an argument that he's famous for developing, called the Lord Liar lunatic argument. Now I've used that many times. You have and it's and what I'm saying here is not that you, it's it's a wrong argument. It's how you use the argument, not should you use the argument. And just before I get into this, I want to give a little caveat here. I don't want anyone to think as I talk about Lewis and point out later on some of the flaws that I'm suggesting that you shouldn't read Lewis because I think you should. I think you'd be making a mistake. I think his book Mere Christianity is uh, is a good book, and a lot of people have been uh, have found it very helpful. In fact, it's interesting. Just in the last month, two I've been aware of two or three different cases of people who unbelievers who have read Mere Christianity, or some are, are they're just new believers or struggling believers who've been given that book, and they have read it, and it has, you know, the Lord has really used that to to get their attention, turn them around. And, and in one case I know of, that plus the use of the foundation series I did last year, uh, a, a man and his wife and the kids all came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So these are good tools to use. Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, these are good, good tools to use. But what I'm trying to do as I go through this is give you a sense of how you, especially if you're a parent, and our grandparent, you're reading these things to your kids, how you can think a little more uh, perceptively about what's going on. Now, at one point in, uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at the very beginning, little Lucy goes off through the wardrobe, and she goes to the land of Narnia. And she comes back, and she tells her uh, two uh, brothers and her sister about it, and they don't believe her. So she sees a reality. It's not an alternative reality. It is just, it's like, it, it's a, uh, analogous to the believer, I mean the unbeliever who suddenly realizes there's gone from materialism to supernaturalism, realizing there's a whole broader reality than just the material universe. And that was important for Lewis because Lewis, after World War I, became a materialist. He went through this whole progression from Platon, from as an atheist, from Platonism to idealism to materialism, and so he realized that, that as he learned about the Bible, came to a belief in God and then a belief in in Jesus Christ, that there was a greater reality that existed beyond the senses. And see, that's what I've been illustrating with this with our chart back here is that when you just have the autonomous use of reason and empiricism, you have a limited reality. But when you believe what God says about reality, it's a broader reality and it is truth. Okay? That was a very important theme for Lewis in, in, the, in the book. So Lucy comes back and then she go, ends up going back to Narnia and she's followed by her brother Edmund. And then when they come back, 
the other two siblings say, well, ask Edmund, well, did you go to Narnia? And he said, no, no, it was just make-believe. And he just lies about it. Well, the three kids, if you remember, are living in this house with this elderly, aged professor who's roughly modeled on C.S. Lewis himself, who opened his home to children from London during the period of the bombing during World War II. So this aged professor comes out, and he's talking to the kids, and he says, as they're wondering what to do about Lucy and these tales she's telling about Narnia, he says, well, has a... Who's the more honest of the two, Edmund or Lucy? And, and the, the older brother says, well, it's, Peter says it's, it's uh, Lucy. Edmund, Edmund frequently lies, but Lucy doesn't lie. says, okay, well, if Lucy's not a liar, is she, is she lost her mind? Is she insane? Has she gone crazy? said, no, there's no evidence whatsoever that Lucy's lost her mind. Ah, then what she is telling you must be the truth. See, that is the, an, an illustration of his classic argument that when Jesus Christ came to the earth, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be identical with God. Now, either he was telling the truth or he was lying. Does he give evidence of being a liar? Is there evidence in anything that he taught or said that he was a deceptive person? No, not at all. Okay, well, we've dismissed that option. Was he crazy? Was he a lunatic? Was he somebody who just believed they were chopped liver? No, not at all. There's no evidence in anything he says that he's, that he's insane or psychopathic or psychotic or schizophrenic or anything else. Oh, well, if he's not a liar and he's not crazy, then what he says must be true. Therefore, he must be who he claims to be, and that is true God of true God, the Savior of the universe. It's a wonderful argument for who Jesus Christ is. And I've used it many times, and others have used it. And uh, C.S. Lewis is the one who, who is the first to have really set that up. But you see, what he is doing in that argument, if I can get back to my slide here, what, he, what has he done in that argument? That argument is built upon a certain view of logic. Now, it's a view of logic that I believe everybody in this room shares. But if some postmodernist came in here that is intelligent and is consistent with their presupposition of pure relativism in the universe, they're not going to buy that argument at all. They don't have to because they, at, at, a, at a foundational level, they reject that view of logic. Oh, that's just your logic and your reality. But that's not my logic and my reality. So in my reality, I don't have to accept those as the only options. See what I'm saying? So what you see here with Lewis is that he really fits into that top category, that he has a, a view that ultimately the common ground between the believer and the unbeliever has to do with something in the area of reason. On the bottom of the chart, I show that there's another group of people, who apologists. Uh, this is where I put Josh McDowell. And I tell you, I have used McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I've given it to lots of shaky believers and a few unbelievers who are really wrestling with the whole issue of can I, is there really any evidence in the truth of Christianity? And it's important to say evidence because if there's a truth claim, you've got two things you can do. You can either prove it by a higher authority 
Or you can show that if this is true, then there's correlating, validating evidence. So that, that's a difference in how you're approaching it. These, these are folks who would say that, well, we, we can prove that the tomb was empty. You can look at all the historical data that we have in the Gospels and in extra-biblical literature, and the tomb was empty. Therefore, if the tomb was empty, Jesus must be who he claimed to be because he rose from the dead. What's the problem? The problem is you have uh, many unbeliever skeptics who, operating once again on postmodern assumptions or existential assumptions, just say, well, that's true, but you know, there's a lot of weird things that happen in life, just anomalies, and just the fact that the tomb was empty is just another unexplained anomaly in history, and I don't have to believe that. So, once again, see what they're doing is they're enveloping what you're saying in their suppression agenda, and they're just suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. And off to the upper left, flying away and unanchored to anything, is mysticism, which produces a, a uh, view of apologetics that is called fideism from the Latin word for, for faith. But it's not the kind of faith that we talk about, which is a faith grounded in Scripture, where there is evidence of God's work in space-time creation. But it's the idea that, that well, there may not be any validating data. We just believe it because we have to have something to believe in. And so we're just going to take a leap of faith. And that was evidenced by a Danish philosopher by the name of Kierkegaard. So what we would say is that the most consistent approach is revelation, that the point of common ground between the believer and the unbeliever is his inherent internal knowledge that God exists. It is within them. What we have to avoid is having this situation where you have God on the left, upper left, Man is down below, but he thinks of morality and reason, natural law, history as having their own autonomous, uh, self-existent, eternal uh, existence that God is answerable to reason, that the concepts of justice, reason, law, or these autonomous or abstract principles are what God is answerable to, so we appeal to them in neutrality with the unbeliever. And I want to show you by going to Lewis uh, what, I, what I mean by that. Lewis was born in Belfast, Ireland. His name was, was Clive Staples Lewis, and when he was four years old, he decided he wanted to be called Jack. So throughout the rest of his life, his friends always referred to him as Jack. When he was a little boy, he started reading, and he read voraciously, read all kinds of things. He was influenced by all manner of different uh, writers. He, read, he loved Beatrix Potter and all of her books, and he wrote his first novel at the age of 12. When he was uh, 10 years old, his mother died. His father then shipped him off to various private schools in England, and it was during that time that he came under the influence of various uh, teachers that led him to atheism. And for that reason, he always had a bone to pick with the public education system in England, the boarding school system, because of their uh, the agnosticism uh, and atheism of many of the teachers. 
He served in the army in France in World War One, just as he was to matriculate in Oxford. He went there long enough to get into their officer training corps, and then he was immediately called up to active duty and sent to France in January of 1917. He was wounded at the Battle of Arras on April 15th of 1917 and immediately shipped back home. He was wounded by what we would call today friendly fire from an artillery shell that should not have been near him. His best friend was killed during the war, and he had made a promise to him that if he died, that Lewis would take the responsibility to taking care of his sister and his mother. He took care of this, uh, his friend's younger sister until she got married, and he took care of his friend's mother until she died in 1951. That gives you a sense of his you know, sense of integrity and sense of honor. He was a member of, a, of an Oxford club called the Coal Biters that would sit around and read out loud Norse and Icelandic sagas and myths in the original language. When he was 16 years old, his Greek teacher said that he had read more of the classics than anyone he knew and had a greater natural ability to translate from Greek uh, into English. Uh, the Coalbiters Club was founded by another famous writer by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the one who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They were best friends. And uh, one, of, one of the other reasons that I'm talking about Lewis is there are several people in the church who are reading Lewis, and there's some people in the congregation who have read Lewis and don't like Lewis. And for those who have read Lewis, and he's, he, frankly, he never really appealed to me that much, Tolkien disliked the Narnian Chronicles. He thought they were hastily written and unrealistic. He knew his friend Jack could do better. Lewis was a confirmed bachelor. He did marry at the age of 60 to a divorced former communist of Jewish heritage who was a believer. And that marriage lasted for three years and she died of cancer. And that's what the play and movie Shadowlands is based on. If you haven't seen that, I would recommend that. He's written. He wrote all kinds of different uh, works. He wrote his, the one, the apologetic work that he is most widely known for is the work Mere Christianity. But he also wrote a book called Miracles, which dealt with how to understand the fact that God can perform miracles in history, and that is. Uh, uh, a well-done book, and he does a good job in his argument there. He's also wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, where he dealt with the whole question of how can a good, loving God allow uh, undeserved suffering to exist in history. He wrote a number of children's books. Not only did he write the Narnia series, but he also wrote some science fiction for children. And all of this was somehow all related to presenting a, a Christian worldview within his, within his writing. When he was a young man after World War I, uh, he, w- he came out of World War I. He was still an atheist. He goes through various different schools of thought. He's a materialist. And uh, the, a relative of a close friend was beginning to die. And as he observed his death, it caused Lewis to start rethinking his materialist philosophy. He goes through a period of about eight years when we would say that he... Uh, gradually shifts his views toward God, finally uh, coming to a saving knowledge 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was through the influence of several people. For example, he read G.K. Chesterton, who had become a, a, a believer, and uh, he loved loved reading him. He also uh, had as his best friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who influenced him. Now, Tolkien wa- always was a, uh, a, a Roman Catholic, never left the Roman Catholic Church, so that was his view of, of uh, Christianity. And it came to the point towards the end of his 20s that Lewis realized that most of his friends, including many of his favorite authors, such as Chesterton and Johnson and, and uh, Spencer and Milton, were all Christians who held to a Christian worldview. And so he realized that, that he needed to rethink his view of Christianity. So by his late 20s, two paths were beginning to intersect in his thinking. One was from a vantage point of reason. He was beginning to realize that Christianity was rational. Now, let's think about that critically. What's going on here? He's coming out of a very rational background. Uh, he's been, he's an, as an unbeliever, he was a Platonist. Platonism always equates to rationalism. And he was a Darwinian. He never gave that up. He always had this problem with reason being the ultimate arbiter in truth. He never really subordinated um, reason into that triangle we have for God. See, the problem is that morality and reason and natural law have to be in God, not outside of God, in a biblical worldview. And he never quite quite got there. He became a believer when he was 33 years of age. And then that began his life as an apology. Now, he did a lot of positive things. Some of the books I mentioned earlier are very good. He also wrote an article called uh, Faulting the Bible Critics. I have a reprint of it. But remember, Lewis, in his, in his career, was one of the greatest scholars of English or medieval English literature. Uh, um, and, and that was his, he was a professor of medieval and Renaissance English. That was his field. That was his area of expertise. And the reason I mention this, this particular article, because he is interacting with what a number of so-called experts of the New Testament claim about the New Testament. See, we're facing the same kind of thing today where people come along and say, well, uh, Paul and James and John really didn't write the New Testament. Uh, it was really cobbled together by different people. It's, uh, uh, the New Testament was really written in the uh, late or early first century by people who weren't even eyewitnesses of Jesus. And all of this talk about Jesus being God was just uh, legend and myth that had grown up around Jesus that was then inserted into the Gospels. And I just love, well, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, of course, but I just love the way he begins. He opens the article by saying, The undermining of the old orthodoxy has been mainly the work of the divines engaged in New Testament criticism. He recognizes that these are professional New Testament scholars. They're not really believers, though. They're operating on liberal assumptions. And what they claim is that uh, the Bible is filled with legend and romance. And so Lewis then says, in, re, in reaction to this, or response to this, said, I should think very likely to, um, he says, uh, a man who has spent his youth and manhood in the minute study of the New Testament texts and of other people's studies of them, whose literary experiences of those texts lacks any standard of comparison. 
No, that's all they've done is study New Testament. So they don't have any broader understanding of literature. They lack any standard of comparison such as can only grow from a wide and deep and genial experience of literature in general is, I should think, very likely to miss the obvious things about them. If he tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, how well his palate is trained in detecting them by their flavor. Not how many years he has spent on that gospel. But I had better turn to some examples. And that was his basic thesis. He said, these guys are claiming that they, this, is, this is myth here and this is legend here. He says, well, what's their experience with legend and myth? I've spent my whole career in medieval English literature studying legend and myth. I know legend and myth when I see it, and it's not in the Bible. So he has some, some great things to say. He wrote tremendous articles in defense of Christianity. Now, let's look at some of the flaws. That's where we develop a little discernment. In his view of God, Lewis wrote, In all developed religions we find three strands or elements, and in Christianity one more. What has he just done? Christianity just adds something to everything else. It's not categorically different from every other kind of religion. He viewed it as more reasonable or more rational, and therefore it was true. This is typical of British evangelicals. I know you'll find this hard to believe. I've always found this hard to factor in. In American evangelicalisms, one of, one of the foundational beliefs is the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. We believe it is the very word of God without error. This is foreign to British evangelicalism. It was foreign to Lewis. So you see his starting point is a weak view of Scripture and a high view of human reason. So the, in his thinking, now if you really pressed him, if we got him in here and sat him down and really pushed him, he would probably stick with Scripture. But he gave away too much in what he said at points. He had a view of God that was uh, a little weak as well. He says... Um, According to Lewis, there was a common goal and norm between Christians and non-Christians that is, is, is really morality. That was his common ground. But when he comes to talk about God, he says there are certain ideas about God that are common to unbelievers and believers, and that's our point of, of uh, commonality. This is seen in his book, The Wind and the Willows, where the mole asked the rat, and I've used this quote many times to get people to think a little more deeply about, about what worship is, because it's a great illustration of what worship is. But it also reveals something a little uh, weak in Lewis's view of God. In The Wind and the Willows, the mole asked the rat, Are you afraid? And the rat his eyes shining with unutterable love answers, Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, yet, O oh mole, I am afraid. See, there's that sense when we come into the presence of God that you can't control God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that's what Lewis is trying to communicate in that phraseology. But what is, if you read all of Lewis... It, it's this idea of the dread or the numinous that is what everybody, believer and unbeliever, has 
of God, and that's a point of commonality. So he is already interpreting this view of uh, a certain view of nature and putting that in as his view of common uh, of common ground. Shows up in other ways as well. He has his view of morality, and I just want to read this to you at the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. He says, in talking about how an unbeliever uh, believer can relate to an unbeliever, he talks about the fact that everybody has this idea of, of what is right and what is good versus what is wrong. And he uses various examples, and he says then he is appealing to some kind of standard or behavior which he expects the other man to know about. In other words, when we say this is right or this is wrong, or it shouldn't be done that way or it ought to be done another way, we expect the other person to share our values. And so he goes on to explain that this is a basic law of human nature, that we all share this same sense of what is right or wrong. And he calls this the law of nature. He says, I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have quite different moralities. But this is not true, he says. Now, that's where I would challenge him. He says, this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. Well, as an illustration of that, I talk about, and maybe we'll show this film sometime, uh, based on the book The Peace Child by Don Richardson. Don Richardson was a, was a missionary with New Tribes Missions back in the early 60s. He and his wife were dropped off on a beachhead somewhere in Papua New Guinea, and they go, go in... Uh, into in, the interior and they make contact with a Stone Age tribe that's never ever seen a white person. And they set up their base camp and they begin to uh, give food and trade goods and start to interact with the people and to learn their language and eventually over a period of two or three years they're able to learn their language and they begin to tell them the story about salvation, about how and they start started with Jesus, and they come to the point where Jesus is is arrested and or is betrayed and arrested. That he's betrayed by Judas, and then he is killed and crucified, and he dies for our sins. And when they get to the story about Judas, everybody just applauds him. Oh, wait a minute, what's going on? They were just confused. Jesus just turns out to be the dupe. Judas is the good guy. Wait a minute, what's going on with their system of right or wrong? And what they discovered was within the Sawi culture, the highest standard, the greatest thing that one person could do is to deceive another person to the degree that it cost them their life. Now think about that. They completely perverted the whole sense of right and wrong. So Judas is the good guy, Jesus is the dupe. Now, if you think about that, there's no basis for any kind of integrity or honesty. And this was a real problem that uh, the Richardsons faced in trying to communicate the gospel to these people. Now, I just use that as an illustration of a culture that doesn't have a sense of right or wrong, that doesn't have that as a point of common ground, which is what, what Lewis goes on to say. So, so don't leave you hanging on the story with Richardson. What they discovered, they had to realize, figure out how do these people ever demonstrate that they're telling the truth? I mean, if the highest value is lying, how do you ever convince somebody you're telling the truth? And when things deteriorate so much that everything was about to fall apart, one chief from one little clan would give a newborn baby as a peace child to the 
chief of the other clan. And that was a sign that what I am saying is true. And so then they were able to take that analogy and use that to communicate that Jesus Christ is God's peace child to man. Just learning how to... See, all this is part of apologetics. Well, another area where what Lewis does with this law of morality, and we'll wrap up with this, is that he... He's talking about how this is used. And he says that it's basically the same thing as mathematics. Now, what he is doing strategically is he's saying mathematics, natural law, morality all exist abstractly. And they're eternal principles. And you just appeal to them. Now, as a Christian, nothing exists independently of God. Everything comes from God. God is the source of reason. God is the source of mathematics. Uh, if you really want to study that in interesting detail, listen to Charlie Clough's framework series from about Lesson 114 to 120. And he develops out the whole history of how the Greeks didn't believe in irrational numbers. You know, we always loved irrational numbers when we were uh, in, in junior high and high school. The Greeks didn't believe in irrational numbers. So we have a system of mathematics that believes in irrational numbers, but computers can't do any computing with irrational numbers. So we have a math system that somehow doesn't fit reality. And that math ultimately, that we have a lot of flaws in, in math. In fact, he gives illustrations of how they solve for various equations and working square roots, and you end up with a negative number for speed. And what this, it's not because you made a mistake in your calculation, it's that our concept of logic and math is all based on empiricism, and it won't, only when we derive it from the Godhead uh, can we really come to ultimate truth. Well, uh, just to finish up, a quote I used a couple of weeks ago was from a guy named Charles Eliot, who was a Unitarian president of Harvard, who spoke to the Summer School of Theology in 1909, and he gave this address, speaking about the new religion that will dominate in the future. He said, the new thought of God will be its most characteristic element in the religion of the future. This ideal will comprehend the Jewish Jehovah, the Christian universal father, the modern physicist's omnipresent and exhaustless energy, and the biological conception of a vital force. In other words, it's just going to be a, like a Star Wars religion. The new religion rejects absolutely the conception that God is alienated from the world. It rejects also the entire conception of man as a fallen being. See, the idea that God is alienated from the world is what we would call the creator-creature distinction. This is where Lewis broke down. Because he still views God as being in the chain of being because he still has these Darwinian presuppositions from his human viewpoint still lurking around in his post-salvation experience. Now this guy, um, Charles Eliot, goes on to say, In all its theory and it's all its practice, it, that is the religion of the future, will be completely natural. Keyword. It will place no reliance on any sort of magic or miracle or other violation of or exception to the laws of nature. See, what he's saying is we're going to have this thing called natural law. Now, now what Lewis was doing is saying that morality is natural law. This is the common ground between the unbeliever and the believer. Now, if you push Lewis, sat him down, pushed him to the extreme, he would say, 
no, natural law really is what I mean by the character of God. But that's not how he treated it. And this is what happens strategically with what sometimes what these apologetic apologists will do at times is say, well, we'll just deal with that later. And they just say, we'll just talk about natural law and reason as autonomous concepts right now. But the strategic error is that you, you're, it allows the unbeliever to read into those terms everything in his human viewpoint system. Okay? Now, I know this hasn't been real easy, and you all have hung in there through most of it. At the very least, I want you to think about how you think and come to an understanding that we have to think on the presupposition and assumption of a Trinitarian God who has spoken clearly to man and that his revelation is going to address more than just salvation, more than just your spiritual life and how to live your life. What a narrow, immature focus. But that his revelation is going to tell us how to think about everything in life from the way we interact with uh, other people in terms of family and social structures, marriage, family, uh, employers, employees. But it's also going to go on to talk about how we interact with finances. Even more deep than that, it talks. the Word of God is going to help us think about the very function of economics as a as an intellectual discipline, and literature is a discipline, and uh, the very fact of thinking as a discipline. This book that we talk about is so deep and so profound, and when we dig into this thing, it is going to just rip across everything that we can possibly think about thinking about that we can study it for the next million years, and we won't plumb its depths. That's what's so amazing about this. And that's why, you know, you just can't get anywhere by showing up in church on Sunday morning. If this really is training ground to train and prepare us and to build capacity for wisdom so that we can rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom, then we have to get with it. We have to get beyond kindergarten and first grade. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying because of their regression... Because they have backed up, he's got to go back and reteach elemental doctrines rather than pushing on beyond the basics about Jesus to the real serious doctrines that he wants to cover in the rest of the book. Now, if that was true in the first century, how much more true is that today? That we have to make this... Doctrine isn't just some little thing that we learn about so that we can solve problems and deal with people and some of you know, in the details of our day-to-day life, but it challenges us to think in a completely new way, a biblical way, so that we can be prepared for that future destiny. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And as we look at the light of your word, it helps us to think about everything else in your creation. Father, as we go through these things, we pray that you would help us to, as years go by, to think more biblically, more correctly, and that as a result of that, that we would glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.